Welcome to the Voices in Recovery podcast. Voices in Recovery is produced by Freedom's Path Recovery Society, a registered Canadian charity. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider a donation at www.freedomspathrecoverysociety.ca. All donations go directly to assisting Freedom's Path in providing services free of charge and helps us keep the podcast going. We are grateful for any and all donations. This podcast discusses difficult topics such as childhood abuse, drug and alcohol use, sexuality, sexualized trauma, and more. If you are under the age of 18, please speak with your legal guardian prior to listening. The opinions expressed during the podcast are those of the individual and not those of Voices in Recovery or Freedom's Path Recovery Society. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This podcast is being recorded on the traditional land of the Blackfoot Confederacy. This consists of the Kainai, Pekani, Siksika, and the Blackfeet in the U.S. We acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, which consists of the Bearspaw, Morley, and Chinookie. We acknowledge the Satuna, who are Dene, and the Métis, Inuit, status and non-status from all of Turtle Island, and those who are visiting. We are all treaty people. So, Jeff? Uh, tell us your story, Matt. Well, uh, my name is Jeff Burns. I'm 40 years old. I was born in Ontario, Mississauga. Uh, grew up in Mississauga in Toronto. And uh, parents split when I was about three. And then I started using and drinking when I was about 13. Hmm. Um, my whole life I've been you know, one of those kids that, you know, when I was growing up, if we had a case of pop, I would I'd drink 12 pops all, at one, all, all in a row. Uh, mm. If there was something exciting or dangerous to do, I would do it mm. until it was, I, you know, I risked my own safety. And it was, mm. there was never a never dull moment in my life growing up. And uh, once I found drugs and alcohol, that really sped things up. Mm. And... Uh, all my inhibitions were gone to uh, yeah. start start causing some trouble, and uh, that's that's how it started. I smoked some weed when I was 13. Smoked a joint was the first thing I ever did. Uh, well, I had cigarettes when I was younger, but then yeah, smoking weed when I was 13, and it wasn't long after that. I think 14 or 15, I started to drink uh, mm. drink alcohol, and the only reason I didn't drink alcohol before that was because. I had tasted it when I was younger once, yeah. and uh, it, it was terrible. Mm-hmm. And uh, weed seemed to be the thing that you know it was it, it was it was doable for me then. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when that wasn't enough, and I discovered how, uh, you know the drunk feeling, that's when uh, it it really kicked off, mm-hmm. and I, I gradually went from weed and transitioned over to alcohol, and for the, probably my all my teenage years. It was uh, a lot of alcohol mm. until my late my late teens. Weed was completely gone. What and kind of shit was going on for you during, as a teenager? To was there anything in particular that caused like the upkick of the alcohol? Or um, well, the whole drug. You know, I was I grew up with my dad, so when mm. my parents split, uh, we were I was three, my sister was two, and uh, we grew up visiting my mother and living with my dad. Now, uh, you know, I was, I, I was disciplined a little bit when I was a kid, 
and uh, rightly so in some cases, in most mm. cases, because I, I was I was that kid that mm. was that you know rambunctious, like, yeah. rowdy kid, and my dad grew up in a family where, and my mother did too, where you know discipline was corporal mm-hmm. discipline, uh, mm. nothing too serious, but uh, uh, some things got blown out of hand when and when I was thirteen and. And I was, uh, I moved to my mother's mm. and my dad was served with child abuse uh, and was convicted of that too, mm. or charged with that. And uh, I ended up leaving my life in Mississauga, my full-time life in Mississauga to be exclusively living in Toronto. Mm. And uh, I was put on the stand at the age of 13 to testify against my father. Mm. And That must have been that, awful, man. Yeah, that, I think that was the day there that, um, wow. you know, manipulation and... And uh, a lot of a lot of manipulation, lying, and and not caring mm. uh, about you know the consequences of my actions started. Uh, I was there was a lawyer there that had uh, wrote a there got me to write a statement, and then kind of it coerced honestly coerced me to to uh, stick to that statement and adjusted my statement mm-hmm. for me. And then put me on the stand, and uh, when I couldn't remember what I had wrote, obviously because it wasn't really my mm-hmm. true view on what had happened with my father that yeah. day, um, you know, I was coached to just I do not recall, I do not recall, and, and uh, so and then I was I remember being coached in the hallway of the courtroom at a recess, and and we went back into court, and uh, we went back into court, and they said, well, what were you doing in the hallway? Where you, they were, they were coaching him in the hallway. I was just a child, so mm. uh, our, my mother's lawyer said, "No, no, we weren't," and I knew that was a lie. Mm. And the whole thing about being in court was to be honest, right? Mm. And uh, so, right then and there, I think was a big turning point in, you know, even the courts is mm. not a, you know, people lie in court, and oh, yeah. and 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 Regularly. I was only young and very impressionable, mm-hmm. and I and that I think of a lot of my authority. Uh, views on authority, views on the court systems, they were drastically affected at that point. I was, I was a good kid growing up as yeah. far as, you know, I took a lot of risks, but breaking the law wasn't one of them. I hung out with kids that did, and mm-hmm. I was always a kid that they would go into Shoppers Drug Mart with my friends and, and shoplift, and mm-hmm. I was like the lookout guy, or I would just stand mm-hmm. there, and yeah. I, was, I, was, I was afraid of doing, doing crime because I knew it was wrong. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and then shortly after that, that time I was in court, uh, yeah, I, that's when obviously when I started using as well, that helped. And then I had this view on authority, the law, that it doesn't really matter mm-hmm. what you do because when you go to court for it, it could be mm-hmm. altered. So, yeah, growing, so once I was, uh, once I went to school in Toronto there in, in junior high and in, in high school, uh, all bets were off on what I did. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I was uh, break and enter, things like that. I just small stuff at first, a lot of vandalism, moving on to cars and then stealing cars, breaking into school buses and businesses, things like that, and uh, never got caught. And then it's just, I don't know how I never got caught, but for my, and I'm talking every single day, it's like mm-hmm. I couldn't do enough things. Mm-hmm. And the more things that I did do, the more invincible I thought we were mm-hmm. and, and thought, you know, this is great. We just mm-hmm. do whatever we want. Never thought about the consequences, who we were hurting, who I was hurting and, uh, or how that would affect anybody's lives, mm-hmm. you know, on the, on the other end of it. It's really hard to think about consequences when there aren't any at the time, right? No doubt. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, and then even I went, I think it was about 18 or 19, and I got, I got in a DUI and I wrecked a car. Mm. And uh, I wrecked my mother's van and another car that I drove in and damaged in front of the police that were following me. And uh, they brought me to my mother's house, who was her vehicle, and woke her up. And, and the cop just happened to be a friend of my mother's mm. boyfriend at the time, who was a tow truck driver. So even that time there, you know, I went to court and... Here's another, you know, situation in court where I went in and due to de deals being made or mm -hmm. favors back and forth, uh, I stood up. They had a breathalyzer on me. I failed it. Uh, they had a damaged car. It happened to be one of my friend's parents from high school. It just mm -hmm. happened to be that person. And uh, I went to court and they said, we have insufficient evidence to charge, charge Jeff Burns mm -hmm. today. And so there's another time in court where it was like the, the chips are down and mm -hmm. I'm going, I could possibly be facing some real charges because I'm 19 now. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and again, nothing. And mm -hmm. I walked out of court without any conditions, nothing. And um, so within a couple months, I believe, of that, you know, I really got heavy into breaking into cars and stealing mm -hmm. cars. And, and, uh, and I got arrested for seven seven stolen cars and a bunch of mischief charges mm -hmm. break and enter garages and things i went to that and uh i spent a couple of days just in lockup waiting to go to court and get bail and i and again like i don't know how it happens but at this time i thought i'm not going to call anyone i'm just going to mm -hmm. ride this out and see if i can get out on my own I'm, this is i'm ashamed now of what i've done mm -hmm. this time and i'm definitely caught because i had yeah. a co-accused co that gave his the story and we were we were toast in court and uh so we go to court we get through the first couple of hearings and then the the, the, the pre-trial is about to happen and uh, i had a lawyer he had a lawyer and his lawyer was through the ut and and you know his dad had connections there so and i and my mother had taken me and we had hired a brand new lawyer just past the bar and had his own office down on queen street and uh great guy nice looking family and just brand new baby, and uh, we're going to we go for the pretrial, and he doesn't show up, and uh, and we're looking at two years plus a day for the for what yeah. we've done is what we were told, and again, uh, you know, sad to say, but that lawyer I had on his way to our pretrial, uh, a semi jumped the barrier and and destroyed his car and killed him. Wow! And uh, in light of Jeez. yeah. And in light of that incident that had happened that no one in the morning really knew, but we took a recess mm. and details started coming out. Uh, in light of that happening, uh, my co-accused lawyer said, I'll take care of both of them. Mm -hmm. and, and in light of the death of the lawyer and everything, and all of the, you know, I guess in their fellowship of law, law officials and mm -hmm. that, um, they felt bad and, and gave us a two-year you know, like probationary period, yeah. which was a huge wow. break. As, mm -hmm. as, as I still feel a little guilty even calling it a break or, or saying that it was, a, it was a positive in any way because that man lost his life. Mm. But in, our, in my view at the time, I thought, you know, as sad as I was for the guy, uh, the lawyer who passed, um, you know, we were off. Mm -hmm. And I was back into society on, on terms. Mm -hmm. And out again, and not and free again. Mm -hmm. So, uh, it, man, it would have been hard to, to take the law as a serious thing. 
Oh my! I must had, have started to feel like a real joke to you. Yeah, I had yeah. no, absolutely no, not so much that I didn't have that much respect. I didn't like the police, but that was mm -hmm. more. Of, I think influences around me and the people I chose to grow up with and hang yeah. out with while I was growing up. Uh, I kind of was one of those. I would, I would, uh, you know, opinions really, really affected me back mm -hmm. then. And if they were, a lot of my friends and people I hung out with were usually twice my age at that at that time. And, uh, and they had their, their opinions about the police and authority, mm -hmm. and they were never very positive. Mm -hmm. And um, so I grew up like that, but, you know, the, the idea of getting caught, to me, was, I had no fear in it, because mm -hmm. I had been caught, and over and over and over again, yeah. getting caught, and, and absolutely no mm -hmm. repercussions yeah. to my, my actions. Yeah. And... Um, and even, you know, like I had conditions, no drinking, no this. And uh, immediately I was out there drinking, breaking my curfew. Mm -hmm. uh, just, and after I was sitting in a courtroom waiting to hear that we're going to pretrial and possibly going to, going to jail for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. And being that terrified of that situation. And then, of course, once I'm out again, free uh, mm -hmm. on the steps of City Hall in Toronto, the first thought in my head is, well, now I can get away with more, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? And so, and so my conditions were never, ever followed. I didn't, mm -hmm. I had no respect for the conditions. Um, Why would you? No, I know. And I, <laughs> and it was hard to even see how, because I'd never experienced the actual punishment or mm -hmm. actually, you know, I'd never had to pay back for what I had done. Mm -hmm. And I had lots of fear and wondering what would happen. And every time I sat in a, in a jail cell or was picked up for, you know, disorderly or anything like that, I would, uh, I would just say, say to myself, it was almost like a manifestation and say, I'm out of here. Like, I'm going to mm -hmm. be out of here. And in my head, every time I was mm -hmm. let out within a couple days, yeah. even up to the present time, you know, once I, I moved to Calgary. And so my behaviors kept on like that for, for my late teens. Uh, in my 20s, and I started using cocaine when I was about 18, 19 years old. And uh, once I did that, um, it was pretty much the doors were open for any other kind of drug. Mm -hmm. And I shot heroin once uh, in my mid-20s, and ecstasy was a big thing at the time. And, and I just did it all and didn't, I wouldn't go to work like that. Mm -hmm. I would use at work, before work, after work. Um, be drunk and go to work uh and i think all that too is like the bosses were like the authority at work mm -hmm. so and i thought well i'm just going to keep doing anything i want to do and life mm -hmm. seems to just keep rolling along and turning out for me and i didn't really have anything that i cared about other than myself to worry about right and every time that that had happened i i'm still here i didn't lose anything um so Moving on, to, I moved to Calgary in 2008, and I had been stabbed in 2007. I almost died, stabbed in the chest in a, in a, in a fight. And, uh, and the, so you'd think that would sober me up or teach me. I was high on cocaine that night, mm -hmm. and I lied to the nurses and lied to the cops that come to take the statements. And uh, the minute I got out of the hospital after nine days, uh, they, I went to the police station, picked up my belongings in a plastic bag, I got a wallet and a couple other little things and covered in blood. And I take my wallet out. I got hundreds covered in blood. And what do I do? Don't even wash the money off. Mm -hmm. Go straight to the bar and had one of the, the owners of the bar take the money, clean it off, 
and bought drugs mm. uh, right out of the hospital. So there was no stopping my use even when I was younger. Mm -hmm. So I finally, my stepbrother lives out here in Calgary, so he invited me to come out a few times. I tried once and had a girlfriend and got paranoid and jealous, I think, and I came back to Toronto and, and then that, that ended and then I decided I'm finally going to move out to Calgary mm -hmm. and that was 2008. And uh, so I came out here, I lived with my brother for a little bit and started a job the day I got here. It was, it was 2008 and it was busy uh, at the time. And so the day I got here, I had a job and then I think it was the following day I started on a night shift and I don't want to say the company here in Calgary, but it was a, it was, it was a labor job and it was in a, you know, in a, you know, in a, in a union style uh, company, a lot of hard work. And uh, wouldn't you know it, the shop I'm working at, the dealer, there's dealers mm -hmm. working in the crews. And I'm on the crew with the mm -hmm. cocaine dealer. And it didn't take me more than a day or two to see the, pro, the you know, what was happening on the, on, on the shop floor and mm -hmm. who was going to the washroom and how many times they went to the washroom. And I've always been like that, paying attention to everything going on around me. Mm -hmm. And within a day, I knew for sure. I could see who, how many times people were off to the washroom, who would go to talk to who. And within, I think it was the third day I worked there, I had it figured out and mm -hmm. went up to the guy, I assumed that had the dope, and uh, asked, and sure enough, mm -hmm. here you go, and pay me when you get paid kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, so three days after, four days after moving out from Toronto, here I am using cocaine again and mm -hmm. at work. And, th and this time it's acceptable because, you know, yeah. it's not acceptable to the company, mm -hmm. but within the crew and including the foreman and all the workers mm -hmm. on, the, on the floor who were the only ones there, uh, everybody knew what was happening. Mm -hmm. So there were, this was like free for all because nobody, there was nobody to stop mm -hmm. any of us and it were me. So I worked there for about a year and a half and doing the same thing. I left my brother's house because I wasn't getting along with him for obvious reasons, because uh, I was using cocaine and just uh, running myself you know, ragged every day. And, and I'm not a very fun person to be around, or I wasn't when I was using. And uh, he had found a bunch of bags from drugs and that in the house, and he had a little brand new baby there and, uh, and a young daughter, and it wasn't acceptable. So I moved out and went you know, with some guys from work, which, mm -hmm. of course, you know, where that goes. Uh, the same guys that I'm using with and drinking with every night. So we went for about a year and a half out in Forest Lawn, and I was, you know, getting kicked out of every bar and fighting, and, and uh, that's where, the, where I started to smoke crack, too. And that was the first time I smoked crack was in, in Calgary here. And it was off somebody riding by on their bike, and, mm -hmm. and uh, same old story. And the guy I was with, and it, he smoked it. so. That's what he wanted to do, and I didn't have any cocaine, so I said, "Sure, of course, I want to get high." I did that with him, and uh, and I wasn't too keen on it. As soon as I had money again, I was buying cocaine, and but I had put that in my head where this is an available option, mm. you know. And in Toronto, it was for whatever reason in my head, Toronto it, crack cocaine was something that was hidden, mm -hmm. socially very unacceptable, and mm. it was looked down on like. Yeah. And then when I lived here, even though it, I'm sure it still is, it's very mm. socially unacceptable and looked down on. But here it seemed that the people who used it and the ones that I was hanging out with, it was socially acceptable. Mm -hmm. So here I am thinking to myself, well, oh, it's, it's okay here. Mm. But really it was the situation and the people I 
put myself with yeah. that it was okay around and well, nothing had really changed. Yeah, and powder yeah. cocaine has always been like a, a bourgeois kind of drug, right? Yeah. Where you had to have cash to have the powder kind of thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And and that's what it was. And and honestly, co cocaine for me, I think it was the my drug of choice because it was so easily doable and mm -hmm. hideable at the same time. Mm -hmm. and even though I thought I was okay, I'm sure the effects weren't that high, like I wasn't hiding the effects of it too well, but as far as using it goes, mm -hmm. it was easy to use it somewhere. You didn't have to yeah. smoke it and cause it, you know, people wouldn't know. No smell, no nothing. Yeah, yeah. exactly, and I think that was the draw to me because I didn't want to get caught, of course, mm -hmm. anywhere I used it. Um, so, yeah, we were let go. I was let go in 2010, I believe, from, from that job due to the, uh, we were laid off, half the company was laid off, and they gave us a severance check and, and pay and everything. And uh, it was over three or four grand or something. Mm -hmm. And I never made that much money as I did at that company. And then getting that big chunk of money and being let go and living with the people I was living with at the time was just a recipe for me for disaster. Mm -hmm. And of course, what do I spend it on right away? Drugs. And, um, you know, I should say also, I've been a gambler since I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And gambling has always been an issue for me, although it didn't ramp up until I was out here in Calgary where, you know, I think it was more of a, a location reason because of the casinos here, VLTs are here, they're legal here. Um, I played a lot of pool in Toronto, gambled that way, gambled with cards, but never, could never get myself into real big trouble mm -hmm. with that kind of gambling I was doing. In fact, it was more of a skill thing that I did in Toronto where here I would go on machines and things mm -hmm. that it was just no a skill involved. Yeah, yeah, just push yeah. the button and the yeah. money got, comes or goes. And uh, yeah, so there was, I was out of control and had had no control of that, of that gambling once I started the, the VLTs and the casinos here. But um, so what I used that severance money for and that when I was like, oh, it was uh, obviously for drugs and I went to the casino and blew it all within a night or two. Mm -hmm. And then, and, uh, and the guy I was living with had lost a gift card or something that night and uh, accused me of doing it and he said, you gotta go. And I, I told him, I can't, I, I didn't take your gift card, but mm. he did, he thought, and we were all using together, so I understand it now. But uh, off I went and was dropped at the bus stop and, and uh, too, too proud to go back to my brother mm. and uh, too afraid to call and too proud to call home, ask for help, because at this point I'm, oh, I don't know, I must have been 20, 29 years old and um, ish. And... Uh, so I, I go get on the bus and ask, you know, how do, I get, how do I get downtown? I went downtown with a knapsack and asked some guys on the street, I gave them a few cigarettes and said, where, where can I go to sleep? And they brought me to the DI. And uh, so I went in there and I was at the DI not knowing what I was going to do. I went in the DI with a pocket full of cocaine and, you know, a bag of it. And they, well, I don't want to say what happened, but I don't want to say it. the DI is a good place to try hmm. to help. But anyways, I went in there and I was still using and... Uh, I lasted about three weeks in there until somebody had mentioned, you know, you, you don't need to be here. You should go and check this other place out, the Salvation Army. Mm. It's nicer and, you, you know, and I did. And uh, so they gave me a bed there and I spent about six months there. Again, I was, I was, I was staying relatively sober then because I didn't really have a choice. I was homeless mm -hmm. and, and uh, no money and 
uh, but the odd time I would go out and when any given chance I thought I could get away with it, I did. Mm. And uh, so I stayed at the Salvation Army for about six months and I got, I got not exited, but I was suspended from their 24-hour uh, bar, I guess, mm. for, for being drunk and them catching me blowing mm. over in there. And uh, ended up leaving there with a friend that I had met there and uh, getting an apartment in that uh, together. And uh, him and I were... Uh, we were meant to meet, but we were also both in the same mindset and uh, the way we thought and, uh, you know, criminal behaviors and, mm. and uh, ripping, ripping people off at the time was no problem for either of us. Mm. And then, so we lived together and, and uh, you know, it was a disaster waiting to happen and we were both using cocaine. And so, but I don't want to say too much about him, but my part in it was, mm. um, you know, I had no problem when it came to making easy money, and if anyone had an idea how to do it, I didn't consider anything else other mm. than I'm going to go along with this and see how I can, you know, mm. manipulate this into something that's useful for me. And uh, although I, I, I love the guy, he ended up being the best man at my wedding years and years later, but mm -hmm. and we were still friends, um, you know. But I, I was still that criminal self mm -hmm. that I was. So on we went and uh, we moved downtown eventually and I met a woman and, and uh, at a bar and uh, one night she came over the first night I met her and then I invited her to stay there, asked my roommate and asked her if that was okay, if she stayed for the night or whatever, he was fine with it and then within three days I was asking her if he could, she could stay you know, permanently mm -hmm. And, uh, and within a month after that, she was pregnant and, uh, mm -hmm. and on, uh, on my way to being a father. Uh, now, the drug use and everything that went on at that time was getting worse. It should have been getting better mm -hmm. due to the fact that a child was on the way. And, uh, and I, I didn't consider it. There were talks of abortion and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it kind of gave a justification, excuse me, to keep using mm -hmm. and I think like the whole it was my idea the abortion was my idea that to have that done because uh, my whole reason to her I remember was you know we're not in a good place to do this we shouldn't be doing this look mm -hmm. at how we live but that's all selfish and like mm -hmm. what I'm thinking what now looking back on it what I was really thinking was I don't want to quit drugs mm -hmm. and, and this is not happening this is yeah. going to interfere with my lifestyle mm -hmm. and you know and it was unexpected, and I thought it was, you know, I didn't like to not have control, and, and mm -hmm. somebody having your child is, there's no control with that, obviously, it's True. happening, it's up to them, and I know that now, it's, you know, but I had no respect for that at the time, mm -hmm. and uh, eventually, thank God, she did, uh, she did keep the, we kept the baby, uh, went through some hard times, and lost her a couple times, lost her at birth, mm -hmm. due to circumstances with CFS, and then again, when she was two, uh, I had started using again, bringing it into the house, and, mm -hmm. and, uh, and we had some incidents with the police, and, and she was uh, taken away again. And every time she was taken away, I would stay sober until after mm -hmm. she was back. Yeah. And then I would, you know, find some mm -hmm. way to do it. So it didn't take long the first time. The second time I got sober, uh, getting her back the second time we had split, and I was on my own and just trying to stay. I stayed sober for four and a half years at this time. And, but I did eventually end up getting her back with the help of my current ex-wife. 
and we were dating at the time and we had a family set up and she has a son and uh, so we were all kind of like a little family unit and uh, that gave me the you know in the in the view of CFS that it made me look like a, a responsible mm. adult I had quit drinking for quite some time and mm -hmm. and using and uh, I was doing the family thing and I really wanted it so four and a half years go by I build up a career in the city as, as uh, in demolition um, I'm doing the best I've ever done in my life we have vehicles we have you know we have jobs we have kids they do fun mm -hmm. things it's the whole life we're renting a nice place up in Beddington and uh, family events, all that stuff. And uh, one day I get it into my head that, you know, I'm going to have a beer. Mm. And after four and a half years of, you know, been being told by family members, you know, my dad one time told me when I was, I think after I was arrested for all the cars when I was 20 or whatever, he said, you're someone who should never drink again. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm like, uh-huh, and that was it. A nod in my head said, yep, you're right, and then went out to the yeah. bar. And uh, <laughs> looking back on it, you know, hindsight's always 2020. Like <laughs> yeah. But what are you going to do now? Um, well, you weren't able to hear it then, right? Of course not. Yeah. I, was, I was in my own... It was sound path. advice, but you weren't able to hear it. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, four and a half years of being clean and sober, and I still gambled, but moderately. Mm -hmm. Throughout that time, I worked a lot, um, actually too much because I worked so much then that I think I was compensating for, mm. for not having the drugs and alcohol. Same with the gambling. I made, I was gambling every day, so $20 at least a day mm. and on sports or something. And uh, that kept me and my, I think my addiction mm -hmm. at bay to, and to be around it, go to barbecues and parties and things. Yeah. As long as I had my ProLine ticket that I bought and something to keep my mind occupied, mm -hmm. I wasn't worried about the alcohol and the mm -hmm. drugs, although it, I found it boring me. I think it's functions that I just didn't like being there at all. Mm -hmm. So, but I would keep the gambling just to keep me kind of like sane. And uh, so I did that and it kind of worked because I was making good enough money that I wasn't going crazy with the gambling. And then uh, once I did have that beer and it was within a, oh, I don't know, few weeks here it, it got out of control the drinking and it was I think it was a week or two I think that the first call to the dealer was made mm -hmm. and I'm calling up my old roommate and, or I shouldn't say who but I'm calling up old friends and getting mm -hmm. something dropped off and uh, I knew exactly who to call I knew exactly like the whole time it was in my head mm -hmm. where as soon as I got drunk the first time I had a mm -hmm. couple beers I was drunk that first time after four and a half years and the thought came back where I should call the dealer. So, and I mm -hmm. fought that feeling for those first couple of weeks where I was like, don't do it, don't do it. You mm -hmm. know what's going to happen. And I did it. Ended up calling the dealer. And it, thank God I had a wife at the time, a fiance at the time, because she was the only thing keeping me from going way, way overboard with mm -hmm. it and keeping me at a kind of like a weekend thing where I didn't mm -hmm. want to disrupt our lives. Yeah. I just wanted to do it as a fun thing, you mm -hmm. know, and thinking I could control it. And that didn't last too long. And uh, before you know it, you know, I'm dipping into savings and, and, uh, and uh, the gambling becomes compulsive after that. Whereas, you know, I spent too much money on dope today. Mm -hmm. Now I got to make it back. And I, I, I've been, you know, I had made some money in the past and I thought it was possible. But when you're high, well, when I was high, mm -hmm. you know, my thoughts were, 
I can do this, but I wasn't in the right capacity to be mm-hmm. winning anything or strategizing anything. I was high and just hoping for the best. And uh, so the combination of cocaine and gambling was put us way, way in the hole. Mm-hmm. And, we, and, we, went and, uh, and we, we had to take a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of insurance out on other things. And, I, and, and uh, yeah, I, I wasted a lot of money back then and, and put our family in a tough spot. And not so much that the kids were suffering, but our marriage was, or our soon-to-be marriage was suffering. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then we got married, and uh, I, st- I was still using at the time. And, you know, it was just uh, one thing after another. I, could, I, always, I would always ruin a good time, right? Like if it was a good mm-hmm. moment, a good day, a birthday, but something like that, somehow I, was all, I would always manage to find one little thing and turn it over and flip it mm-hmm. and, and make this a disaster. And then I would use, and mm-hmm. you know what I mean? And, yeah. and completely destroy the moment. And I did it with our, our engagement, I did, or not our engagement, sorry, I did it with our, our marriage, I did it with birthday parties and big events for the family. And uh, I never knew why, I just, but I always put it on somebody else and I could never take any blame for myself. And, uh, and my poor wife there, she, she took a lot of it and had to deal with a lot because of that. Uh, and always trying to fix the situation mm-hmm. and come up with ways to you know, fix it because she loved me, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and wanted, me, wanted it to get better like how it was when I was sober. Yeah. And I just couldn't go back. Once I started, I just couldn't go back. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, it was a, f- a couple years of cocaine use and then when the money ran out and I had gambled it all away and things were looking really, really bad, mm-hmm. um, I didn't even have enough for a gram of cocaine anymore. I had to, you know, I had to, I, I found a guy and I found, discovered crystal meth and the price of crystal meth mm-hmm. and how the difference in the price of the two and, and I come home and I remember, you know, thinking I was a genius and, and you know, I, I solved the problem. Like, you know, mm-hmm. this is going to be the cheap way to do it now. And, uh, it was, but mm-hmm. the, you know, the consequences of crystal meth compared to cocaine for me anyways, psychologically, you know, emotionally were outrageous because I, I had been using cocaine mm-hmm. for almost 20 years and off and on and, and it was nothing compared to crystal meth and what that did to me. That's what I've heard. Yeah. So crystal meth and, and uh, the compulsion was amplified mm-hmm. tenfold compared to cocaine. Uh, I started the gambling compulsion came back and and uh, this is the first time I ever started to uh, steal things mm-hmm. steal from our own house uh, heirlooms anything of value I would I would take and it wasn't so much for the meth it was always for the gambling but the mm-hmm. meth was behind it right mm-hmm. and I had a good job at the time I, I had just got a new position uh, at another company after I'd worked 10 years at a demolition company. I got a, uh, you know, an office job. Things are looking good. And this is exactly when I start to use crystal mm-hmm. math, right? So within a month or two, I was acting funny at work. It was noticeable coming off of a weekend thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did a piss test and off I went and I was let go. And, and it was funny because they asked me if anything was wrong. I said, no. And in my own head, and this is what crystal meth did to me, it had only been a day or two since I had used a lot. And uh, 
I thought for some, how I'm going to beat this piss test. Mm. And this will never happen to me. Like, even though they're asking me to do a drug test, mm -hmm. I could have said no. And I was well within my rights at the time. Yeah. Even the boss there said, why would you agree to that? Mm -hmm. And, but that was m even my old child self, I think, mm -hmm. thinking, I'm, you I know, got this. nothing sticks to me. Yeah. This isn't going to happen. Yeah. Like, and you know, my whole life had been let off, let off, let off, and mm -hmm. nothing bad ever happened. So I'm like, well, this is the first time where it came down and I was like, yeah. oh, shit. Like I lost my daughter and stuff, but got her back, mm -hmm. you know, and even though it was a lot of hard work, I always thought there's nothing is going to stop me yeah. when I want to put my mind to it and it's going to come back. Well, this time I lose the job and uh, I, luckily I got another job right away and uh, it was working up north in Yellowknife and very big responsibility, a lot of guys taking care of them up there and I bullshitted about you know my lifestyle and things like that to get that job as well and went up there and thought, okay, well, there's no meth up there, I'll be mm -hmm. okay. I looked for it when I got up there, and there wasn't any meth, but there was crack cocaine, mm -hmm. and a lot of it. So within, I don't know, the second night of being in Yellowknife, thinking this is my, this is going to be the, you know, the resurrection of our life now, I got a good job, mm -hmm. I, I'm out way up north where I can't cause any trouble, just make the money, send it home, and be safe up mm -hmm. there. Well, no, I, you know, it was all, it was all drugs again, and to the point where, you know, they wouldn't fire me. I'm sure the people knew. Um, it was to, to the point where I came back on my own and then I come back to Calgary and, you know, regretful on that and, and said, I'm never going back up there. And then the second I hear that there's problems with the job after I had left, I asked to go back again. And I went up there and just, I was, I think maybe because of the, I was just my attitude and the way I thought mm -hmm. of myself and I was, you know, so cocky and egotistical back then and thought I could, you know, it was my way or nothing. Um, I went up there, I didn't like the way the job had been going, and I gave the bosses an ultimatum, mm -hmm. and they said, no, you're gone. So now, number mm -hmm. two, and now I'm let go again, and I'm like, oh, like this is happening mm -hmm. again, right? So the first times in my life where I'm really starting to feel like I don't have, I don't, I'm not who I think I am mm -hmm. anymore. Yeah. I may have been, like, because I, I did work hard, I did, you know, provide, but I'm losing it. It's slipping mm -hmm. away here, and it's becoming obvious in the in the consequences. So I was let go of there, and this is right at COVID, like at the beginning of COVID. So perfect timing to lose a job where mm -hmm. I could call a number and and get two thousand dollars or whatever it was, you know, every two weeks, and mm -hmm. and just ride on that. And and but that wasn't enough for me. I was never nothing was ever enough. So this the money from the government on top of EI that I was taking wasn't enough and I would mm -hmm. use it for gambling and drugs and and uh you know and yeah it wasn't it, COVID was a funny thing because I did stay home with the kids for a while and I was pretty good although I was still using made sure their homeschool and everything went on but I had no respect for our family or our household or anything and uh it got very it got a lot worse at COVID time because now I'm at home lots of time on my hands nothing mm -hmm. to do with gambling in the day and and not want to work and assuming like I'm just gonna, you know, gotta figure something out. So the, the people I was running around with or buying off of, I insert myself into their lives. Mm -hmm. And oh, well, then I see opportunities everywhere to help out and try and make some money or at least get drugs for free. Um, I took every single opportunity I could get. Mm -hmm. And within, with, you know, within a short amount of time, 
I'm driving around with some pretty bad people around the city and, mm -hmm. and doing some pretty bad things and, uh, and uh, not having any consideration for the community or anybody else who lived here or, uh, you know, even any of the drug addicts that we were visiting and, you know, and hurting them now looking back on it. Um, but then, so everything came to a head. Uh, I ended up trying to commit suicide and, mm -hmm. and I had had enough of life really at this point. And things had to change, so my family got involved with my with my wife there, and uh, calling around trying to find a place. And I find Simon House, mm -hmm. the recovery center I went to about almost nine months ago. And I entered the doors there, and uh, so I tried to go to Alpha House to detox. I tried to go to Renfrew, but you know that that. Uh, scared, uh, proud person I mm. used to be would not let myself go back in these places and I thought I was too good for this. And, yeah. and now, you know, I see it in a different light now because I, I know how much help there is there and the people there are all people who I know now and mm -hmm. friends and people who have gone back and, you know, it's, but at the time... Like angels I, in there, man. Oh yeah, for mm -hmm. sure. And even the clients, you know, like some of the oh. best people I know have, have spent more than one occasion at Alvaos or Renfrew. Me and, as well, um, my friend. Yeah. So, and but back then I never went there, so I, I, yeah. I looked at it in a totally different view, mm -hmm. and uh, never looked at it for the good it was doing, just at, at the people that were in there, and that, and I thought that wasn't me, although it was, uh, mm. you know, in a lot of ways, in every way. But uh, so I, I called Simon House for about a week or so, or two weeks. I, I stayed at the Ambassador Hotel, getting clean there, and. And, uh, but before that, I had, you know, managed to cause some problems with the law. My ex had, mm -hmm. I had a restraining, I have a restraining order and, uh, threatened her and threatened mm -hmm. my family and destroyed the house and all the, all the stuff that goes along with, uh, psychosis and, mm -hmm. I had, you know, the, the SWAT team and everything there and ended me up at, uh, you know, out of the house, staying with the wrong people. And then finally to the point where I wanted to kill myself and, uh. And thank God that uh, Carrie called me from Simon House that day, mm. and got me into got me in that day. I was I was I was at the end of the rope, and yeah. I was considering going to just rob a bank because money was everything to me. And if I got could just get some money, I'd be all right somehow. Mm. But, and I I was literally on the train platform, about to walk, about to get on the train and go south to go to the nearest bank, and mm. the phone rang. And it was Carrie, and, and he said, you're coming in tomorrow. So I went back to the hotel and waited it out for a couple of days. Right uh, it was a wait, but... So that was, the, that was my old life, mm -hmm. who I used to be, and, uh, and who I am now. It's a good uh, thing you picked up that phone, man. Yes, sir. Well, mm -hmm. thanks to my sister and my ex and mm -hmm. uh, a bunch of other people, I'm sure, were involved. And, yeah. You know, my sister called around and, and uh, found out waiting times and, you mm -hmm. know, for all their treatment places and Simon House was the shortest and seemed to be the, uh, seemed to be the most you know, likely that I would end up in and mm -hmm. it was. And so I went there and I did the 84 day treatment. I went in there 120 pounds maybe and mm -hmm. just sick looking and, and I was about to, I was, I could have died just from I'm sure health reasons mm -hmm. at the time and, and let alone, you know, trying to kill myself. But, um, I went in there and I knew it was my last chance for, for any chance with my family. And that's honestly what I went in there for. Mm -hmm. We were, we, you know, you learn, we learned in treatment that, you know, you got to do it for yourself or in the program, you got to do it for yourself first. 
but in my case, it was 100% for my kids and my mm -hmm. wife to get them back. And that's what I was, that, that was my drive and motivation um, pretty much the whole time I was in there until mm -hmm. near the end, uh, where I could see that that probably was not going to happen. Uh, but it, it is what it is. But it More likely to happen if you're sober. Oh, yeah, it'll never happen if I'm using that. Yeah. Sure. But uh, so I did the 84-day treatment and, and learned some new things. Uh, so Ivan has saved my life, to be honest. Um, I had to relearn a lot of things, ways to live, you know, mm -hmm. small things. Uh, got a routine. Back to kind of like living, but it was more not more living as an adult, but more like living as a child again. Mm -hmm. And learning all the things that you learn when you're, when you're young, right? And yeah. fortunately, I had... I have a nice background and a nice, you know, upbringing where, you know, my, my childhood wasn't a bad time mm -hmm. all the time. It was things that I did that were, you know, extraordinary mm -hmm. in the time, but nothing that really my parents did or anything else. They had their problems just like anybody else. I just chose to act out on those things, mm -hmm. you know, and make it an excuse for me to do what I wanted to do. And mm -hmm. that's how that went. But, uh, so thankfully and, and you know, and, and gratefully to, or gratefully to my parents that I had that those skills, those life skills, and yeah. cleaning and sewing and you may, and you know cooking and things like that. I know how to do all that because I know a lot of people come in and don't have any of those skills and grow up with with none of that experience mm -hmm. and are put into a treatment where they have to learn this really for the very first time. Yep. I just had to get over the you know the like lots of people literally from scratch. Yeah, 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 you know, like never had a real washroom or mm -hmm. you know, you know, and or been in the system the whole time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, or, you know, people who would genuinely care around you or not knowing that yeah. kind of security or, you know, yep. anything like that. Whereas, whereas I felt at home because I could, mm -hmm. I felt things that I know from my family and growing up that I know are there, right? Yeah. And how much people care. So, and that makes a huge difference. Oh, for sure. Because it did for me too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm the same as you. I had that. So, yeah. So, doing the best I could there, I knew I was a little bit above the, grade or above the learning curve there because I had had all those good experiences mm -hmm. as a child and knew how to live, you know, for the yeah. most part. The only thing I was struggling with was with mental health and like uh, the after, well, the effects of psychosis and, and some mm -hmm. residual stuff from the drugs in my mind that are still sometimes there, very, very seldomly now, but they are there. Mm -hmm. And um, it's only been nine months since I've been sober, but... Mm -hmm. uh, so being introduced into the AA program uh, through Simon House and learning about that in, you know, as well as the Simon House program with the CB, CBD or CBT and CBT, all, yeah. all that, uh, th the therapy they do there and, you know, just in general how they, how they treat their clients and how well mm -hmm. they, you know, you know, they take care of you there. Um, it was a new, a new kind of, uh, I wasn't on my own fighting my addiction anymore is how I look at it. Before I, you know, that white knuckling term and when I, when I stayed sober before it was all on my own and I had no help mm -hmm. and, uh, I, and I would substitute things to deal with that and really I was just, you know, a ticking time on when I'm going to use again. And so going through Simon House, learning all, the, all this foundation and the steps and, and getting out to all these meetings in the city. Um, opened my mind up to to the program of AA, and uh, I've never been a religious person. Uh, I've always been a very scientific and logical—well, not logical, but analytical person. Mm -hmm. I would, you know, unless I see it, it's not really there. So, mm -hmm. 
the God concept to me for my whole life was, this is, there's no way I'm going to believe this. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, what do you know, you know, learning some of the, learning the steps in the AA program and following them and, uh, and, uh, you know, actually, actually realizing that God to me and higher power creator to me is all, you know, based out of love and doing the right thing and being a good person. Mm. Uh, personally, uh, I don't see anything as a, for myself personally, I don't see a God. I don't see an image of anything mm -hmm. that I need, that I'm, when I say the word God, it, to me, it's a way of life. And, uh, and thank, thank God that I've chosen to live that life now. And, uh, you know, my days are filled with helping others, going to meetings, uh, service work. This is what I do now on a daily basis. Mm. Every day is like that. I went back to my old career after, after graduating Simon House. And I went in there and something told me that this is not for you anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, it was as if I had gone back to day one at Simon House in my head. Okay. And so my psychosis or whatever that, mm -hmm. that, that mental spot was that I had that was, you know, very confusing and, and scaring me. Mm. all came right back when I went back to that old job. Okay. It was like a, almost like a, a PTSD thing. Well, sounds like it. Yeah, and mm -hmm. uh, so so I went back to work and I just couldn't do it and I didn't want to be there. I was, um, I was struggling with, you know, seeing my old self in a lot of other people, even mm -hmm. though it was none, none, of, none of their fault. But I saw a lot of my old self in my coworkers mm -hmm. and it... it it really disturbed me, and and yeah. and it disturbs me to the point where I see it as if oh my, like I see it as do you know where you're going kind of thing like mm -hmm. this, and if I see myself in somebody, I'm terrified for them. Yeah, to knowing that what I've been through, mm -hmm. no matter where it is in their life, if they're you know a teenager that I may meet that reminds me of myself as a teenager, mm -hmm. I get terrified now for them. Yeah, you know like I want to help you because I, you're doing things that I can mm -hmm. relate to that. You know, I can. I know where this possibly could go for you, and yeah. I really don't want to see that happen to anybody ever mm -hmm. again. Right? And uh, so I switched switched uh, careers. I'm now a photographer and an artist. Um, it's 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 like anything else. It's a lot of lessons in humility and, mm -hmm. and uh, struggling uh, to start something new and reinvent yourself. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm, but I'm doing something new that I love to do, and it gives me lots of time to be, mm -hmm. be a part of the program and help others, which is, you know, all that matters to me right now. Mm -hmm. um, my family, I don't, I'm not with my wife anymore, obviously, but and I do speak to my children over Messenger, but I've also had to step away from the whole parenting thing right now mm -hmm. because I'm still in no position to be mm -hmm. uh, taking care of any children, mm -hmm. my own or otherwise, but... <laughs> Um, I just gotta, just gotta uh, take care of myself at the mm -hmm. moment. But uh, back to AA, you know, the steps. The, when I read the book for the first time, and read the steps, you know, that's my entire life. Everything, every part of that book, I can relate and I can give a story to what you know, something almost exactly the same as what happened, and mm -hmm. you know, right up to you know, with to the wives and you know. Um, the solution and but the steps you know thank god i was open to 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 uh 
getting out of myself for once and, and willing to believe that something would keep me sober and, and get me sober. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, as far as my sanity goes, you know, it's come and my sanity is back. Uh, I can I can do pretty much everything I used to be able to do, although I have some residual thoughts and uh, I think they're more due to trauma in my life and things like that. I have reminders of the past and things like that, but you know, opening myself up to this program and then confessing and you know, when I did my step four uh, and wrote all that out and reread it and and then actually, I came to see you a few months ago. <laughs> I forget. That is so weird, man, because I yeah. don't even remember. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I think I probably told you. I try not to. Yeah, no, yeah. And I, no doubt. I, can understand. I pray constantly while you're here to, so that I'll forget. Uh, yeah, because it's your right. stuff, right? It's not yeah. mine. Oh, well, great. Thank yeah. you. And you're I don't welcome, really, man. My, my, my that's why I let that oh, look great. on my face like, yeah. really? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I looked a lot different then, too, actually. So that might oh, have been okay. It. Yeah. Um, I was still pretty skinny, I think, at the time I came here. That but, explains a lot, actually, because yeah. I, I probably would have recognized you otherwise. It, yeah. yeah, no doubt. But uh, no, it was helpful <laughs> for me. And the, yeah, I got my character defects from you, and I read them. And I'm going to be honest, I, I took them down into my room at Simon House. After I'd come here, I walked back to Simon House, which is a good couple hour walk. It's a good walk. Yeah, and uh, I walked back and I thought about everything and a little emotional. I got back, and it wasn't until later that night that I opened up that, that book with the page in it mm -hmm. that you'd given me. And, I read the character defects and and you know they were exactly who I was mm. and who I had been my whole life and I cried about it you mm. know and I thought and I it wasn't a cry of you know self pity or cry but it was a cry of you know like here's the truth right in mm. front of my face and this is exactly what I knew I had become mm. and too afraid to ever look at myself yeah. like that or or take any kind of you know responsibility for that person I used mm -hmm. to be and I read them and cried and then I got I actually posted them on Facebook and uh, I was just like I'm gonna be open with everybody I'll just be open with everyone because most of my family and friends and mm -hmm. at the time were out west or sorry uh, back in Toronto uh, now I think I have more people here that I know in Calgary thankful or gratefully for, mm -hmm. the, for the program but uh, yeah I did that that step five with you and and the whole you know, tell it to God. I we volunteer at, for bingo at Simon House mm -hmm. as part of the program to give back and make some money for the house. So I think it's a rad idea. Yeah, yeah. And they, yeah. so the house makes money, and we go in there and sell tickets or whatever. And, mm -hmm. uh, so I, I used a couple opportunities there to do work on my steps, and when I was there, and then we were slow. But uh, I remember the one night, shortly before I come to see you, I went to bingo duty and volunteer duty. And I walked around selling tickets, and that's all I did in my head was, you know, talk to God mm -hmm. and tell Him every last thing uh, that I had ever done. And and bingo was typically for about five hours, we were there five mm -hmm. or six hours, and it took me two times to go over everything. And uh, and it was almost like I felt the the ladies and the men who were mostly ladies at bingo, of course, mm -hmm. but the the people at bingo. You know, as I was walking around selling tickets, I'm talking to God and telling him all this stuff, and then I'd stop in my head as I'm selling them a ticket, and then keep walking. I was getting a vibe like, uh oh, these these people know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> like that guilty conscience. Totally. Even though I'm, I'm not making any noise. I'm yeah. just in my head, but I'm just getting looks <laughs> and vibes off of people. 
So I don't know if that's going to be like, just keep going and doing the right thing. But, and, uh, uh, but yeah, that's how I did it, and it seemed to work for me. I just got a lot of stuff out and, uh, and, and helped me, helps me be honest to this day. That was another big deal, honesty, and uh, rigorously honest, right? Like, uh, I, I'm happy to say I don't lie anymore. I don't tell, you know, my mm-hmm. whole life has been a lie. I lied to everybody I've ever come across, and, and it wasn't until I... I I was uh, living at Simon House where I, where I made that decision to just, if, if you're going to do this do and get all this help from all these good people, you know, do it right and do it exactly how it's laid mm-hmm. out to do. Yeah. And, and then I know, as much disbelief as I had in God or any of the concept of that before, mm-hmm. you know, that whole pro, uh, contempt prior to investigation. Well, if I don't, if I don't be honest now and do exactly how it's laid out, Mm -hmm. I'll never know if it was going to work or not. That's a good point. You know what I mean? So, and then I'll always doubt because I cut corners. You'll never know for sure. I'll never know for sure if this program really works. And, and I can say on my word to this day, I, you know, I haven't had an urge to drink use, um, I care about people now. Yeah. I, you know, I, I sense a lot from people where, you know, I know when t- to go and lend a helping hand or when, to, you know, maybe somebody needs some space. Mm-hmm. And I was never that person before. I didn't care about anything that wasn't mm-hmm. directly related to benefiting myself. Mm-hmm. It was all about me then. Yeah. And now it's absolutely nothing about me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And, and that's interesting you say that because, like, talking about the spiritual awakening, which is what you're describing, mm-hmm. right? It, it doesn't have to be a religious thing. Mm-hmm. It does, it, and it even talks about it in the book, right, mm-hmm. in the back, it, that where you're quoting from, mm-hmm. um, because it's an educational variety, and mm-hmm. it's just about being open. Mm-hmm. That's what it, that paragraph about contempt prior to investigation, it's like, look, just shut your brain off for a second and be open. That's right. it. Yeah. That's it. Because what's happened, regardless of your belief in God, is that fundamental change mm-hmm. to who you are, mm-hmm. right, to how you see the world. Yeah. That's what it talks about in that whole section on spiritual awakening, right, mm-hmm. is about that fundamental change in you that changes you from that self-centered creep, right, mm-hmm. or whatever, yeah. self-centered whatever I was, too, yeah, yeah. Um, into someone who's just less self-centered, right. right, and more focused. That's a fundamental shift for us, man. Mm-hmm. That's not a small thing. No, yeah, right? definitely. Like, I agree. Yeah, I can yeah. sense it off you. It's, yeah. it's awesome. Oh, that's good. Thanks, yeah, David. Man. Yeah, so now, um, uh, you know, like, to me, the past is the past. And those, you know, those that struggle with that whole, speaking of step four and five, mm-hmm. um, you know, that looking down on ourselves or mm-hmm. when I, as, I, as I tried not to do, it wasn't for a while where it's funny, too, because I, all I had to hear is, it's like they say, you hear that one little thing that clicks something mm-hmm. in your mind and, and changes everything. Well, I had heard it a few times in the rooms and then I'm listening to a song and uh, it's one line in one song, and it's, I'm just paraphrasing now, but it says, if you're looking in the mirror and you see a failure, that's all you're going to see. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've, I heard that and in conjunction with everything else I've heard in the rooms. I thought, you know what? You're not that person anymore. You, that's mm-hmm. not who you are. You're, you have changed. And, uh, and, and it wasn't until that point 
that ev all the shares in the rooms and things mm. like that that I would take personally yeah. and, and really get upset and mm -hmm. sit there and vibrate and get, you know, resentful towards yeah. everybody in the room thinking like this is this whole thing is about like they're all bashing a bunch me. Bunch of assholes, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't <laughs> until I, I, I sat down and I was like, wait a minute, like you're not that person and telling myself that every day. And mm -hmm. you're not, that's not who you are anymore. And you know, like um, now I, I see it more now I go to the rooms not to stay sober myself but I go there in hopes of you know seeing somebody who I can relate to and mm -hmm. help out now yeah. and if I see them and it always seems to work like anytime you're there it's you're gonna mm -hmm. be somebody that you know it's like I, there's a reason why I'm here today mm -hmm. to, to, to go and talk to this person and uh, and there's no shortage of you know despair in those rooms sometimes you got it man. so you know it's a good mix of people who can help and people that need the help and and uh, it works that's a, beautifully. That's well that said, man. Well said. Well, there is you. no shortage of suffering in there, right? And, yeah. And sometimes some of us who've been around for a while, we forget that, right? Because yeah. oftentimes I'll go to meetings and um, because I'm not really focused on not drinking, mm -hmm. I'm more focused on, okay, how can I be of use here? Mm -hmm. But then I forget that there's people literally in the room sometimes that are on the brink of fucking death, right? Mm -hmm. like, and so being reminded of that is, is a good thing. Right, and that's what That's why when you stick around for a while, you got to keep going to meetings, right? It's because that's one of the things we get. Mm -hmm. We get reminded that holy shit, I might be doing okay, right? Like my whole life could be falling apart, but I wasn't thinking about drinking, right? right. So I might be doing okay, but what about what about you, mm -hmm. right? Like what about John? What about? Um, and so that remind I like it, right? Because mm -hmm. it's a good reminder, man. Mm -hmm. And and well said. Thank you. Yeah, man. Yeah, so now in the in the rooms, I you know I go there to listen. I, I pay close attention to everybody who's speaking, mm. and just that old analytical part of my brain that's not being used for for uh, negative purposes anymore. I, you know, I use that you know being able to see or notice things, small things in people that to help them now instead of to take mm -hmm. advantage of them right? and, yeah. and see how I can I can you know shift this shift this into something for me. I do it now so that I can see if somebody needs something and they're just too too afraid to say something or if they're yeah. you know, sitting there and mm -hmm. you notice little gesture, little you mm -hmm. know mannerisms in people that they're hiding. For sure. And people hide things well, and but just being able to do that now and all that analyzing I did back in my addiction and you know mm -hmm. for myself, turning it around for people that you know use it for the good have their own voice or don't want to use their own voice because they're afraid to speak up and mm -hmm. think that they're you know they're not worth it or yeah you know. But, yeah, now I've been sober for a bit of time here now, and that's how I live my life. And I, I tell you, I can be at more peace, and mm. and uh, I'm happy to be a Simon House alumni now. I'm there almost every day. I go visit right the guys and help out where I can, and uh, share some meetings, do some service mm -hmm. work. Uh, um, yeah, there's a, I started a meeting at the Salvation Army downtown for CMA, mm -hmm. and uh, that's just a brand new meeting, and and and. You know that whole pride thing. I, I always had a, a struggle with it, like proud. How can you mm. be proud now and not be proud? But certain things in recovery, I've discovered that you know it is okay to be proud of some things. For me, anyways, you know, mm -hmm. like when we're doing something good for the community, good for other people, and they're helping them, and they're not, you know, and it, it lending a hand. Mm -hmm. That is something to be proud of. You know? Sure. The pride. The pride was more gauged. Because I struggled with this at the beginning, where it was like, mm -hmm. well, if I do something right, I just will never talk about it. I still struggle with saying anything, good deeds I do. But 
Yeah, because that's a tricky slope. Yeah, because it's like right. a, you don't want to come yeah. off as gloating about it, but or, or talking about it as if you're bringing bring yourself yeah. up about it. Because, but the thought, if if that's the reason you're bringing it up, then that's prideful. Either way, I see it. Mm -hmm. But when I say it, if it's a, you know, as far as in, say an naloxone kit, right? And mm -hmm. For a good example, carrying around an naloxone kit, no matter who you are mm -hmm. or how many times you may have had to use it or if you even know how to use it you know i tell i've been telling people like this is if anyone carries it at least in your bag your purse mm -hmm. whatever at least you have it if somebody else needs it that's right there yeah you know what i mean and things like that i have no problem talking about that because that you could potentially save somebody's life mm -hmm. carrying around a little kit in your bag yeah and you don't even have to use it. I know a lot of people are worried about, you know, like, oh, well, what would, I, what would I do? I don't mm -hmm. want to play God with somebody's life, try to, or even just injecting somebody in general is scary mm -hmm. for a lot of people. But Well, and there's like all kinds of horror stories, right? Oh, about for sure. About being Good Samaritan. So people keep those horror stories in their mind. Right. They think that's the norm, but it's not. No, right? oh no. People are yeah. grateful that you have that. And, yeah. Uh, and yeah, that's, uh, well, I shouldn't talk too much about it, but that's like, I was like, uh, we were talking about that the other day, and I said, you know, people are worried about having it because they don't want to have to use it. But mm -hmm. if we all had it, you know, there's always somebody willing to use it around you. Or yes. at least there's the option mm -hmm. that you have it and you're there. Well, and if you go get one and you're yeah. going to use it, you can have the pharmacist tell you how to use it. Oh, yeah. Right? Is that, oh, like they'll can, do it right there. Yeah, oh, they'll yeah. go through it for you for sure. Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. that's good to know too for people because, yeah. yeah, a lot of people don't know how to use it. And, and I, well, I don't care because I don't know how to use it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and it's it's a matter of honestly a matter of a ten minute thing. And the way I learned how to use naloxone, uh, you know, it was in my addiction. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine who was uh, over at my house, uh, she was pretty bad into that and and was nodding off at my mm -hmm. house. And and I had to wake her up. And I was like, you know, I was getting scared for you. And mm -hmm. she was the one who showed me how to showed me how to use it. And right. said, "Well, if you ever have to need to mm -hmm. use this, this is how you do it." Yeah. And even way back then in my addiction, this is about a, a, over a year ago. She showed me that one time, mm -hmm. and for whatever reason, that part of my brain held on to that Excellent. good little piece of information yeah. because, um, for, uh, fortunately, I've had to use them a quite a few times mm -hmm. down here, and uh, like twice yesterday, and and. Wow. If it wasn't for her showing me that one time, and mm -hmm. I just can vividly remember mm -hmm. how she did it and yeah. what she did, and if it wasn't for that, you know, who knows what would happen? Yeah, if, yeah. If anyone needs to learn how to do that, or or, mm -hmm. or thinking about learning how to do that, look for somebody who knows how to do it mm -hmm. and get them to show you. Speaking of that, yeah. uh, how can people check out your photography, man, and get in contact with you? Oh, my photography. Well. My I'll, I'll collect links from you. But oh, that'd be great. Yeah, if you have like an email that you can give people or... Yeah. I, I wouldn't advise giving your number out because yeah. we do have listeners in like 17 countries. Oh, wow, cool. God only knows, like yeah. somebody will be calling you. And, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if my long distance will pay for that. Well, but. given given, yeah. the, given our audience is probably people like you and me, Yeah. chances are they'll be like, oh, I'm going to bug this dude. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. <laughs> I'm always happy to talk, but yeah. messaging is much more... Uh, yeah. yeah. Well, and you gave your full name, mm -hmm. so people can find you. Where can they find you? Yeah, my name is Jeff Burns. I'm on Facebook. Uh, you can you can message me through Messenger. Uh, you'll see my profile there with the photography thing. is a black and white profile. And then I have a Instagram and Twitter, and the Instagram is hashtag B A L I S A G E 
art design, which is balisage. It's a French word for uh, waymark, which is a religious word, and, mm. you know, a starting point kind of word. And cool. So it's balisage art design, and uh, same as Twitter. Yeah, balisage art design is, is what I'm doing now, and have a lot of photography from the city of Calgary, and uh, mainly downtown, and, you know, uh, I just truly love taking some photos mm. now and thank God for my sobriety because my vision has returned mm, and, that's uh, great. you know, and, and it's really helped with my, the art yeah. I do and the fine art I do. I could never have held a pen or pencil mm -hmm. steady for more than, you know, half a second before. Yeah. Now it's, it's amazing what sobriety does. So if anyone out there is getting sober, uh, do, do try to do some art once you're sober because you'll be surprised at what mm -hmm. you're able to do. For sure, and yeah. yeah so if you got, if anyone out there uh, wants to talk to Jeff about photography or recovery or whatever else, look him up online, and you'll be able to connect with him. Definitely, Jeff. Thank you so much, man. Oh, thank you, David, so yeah. much. It's great to be here again with you. And, Dude, uh, it's great to be here. And, yeah. and as you're talking, I'm like, I still can't remember the, <laughs> That's the okay. fifth step. But um, you know, the list of defects. I'm sure we talked about it. Yeah. When you mentioned it, it's funny because some some people ask me like. Why do you do that? Like, mm -hmm. it's, it's hard enough. And I'm like, look, it's not because I'm critical. Mm -hmm. Not at all. No. It's because I know exactly what I think mm -hmm. I would like to see right. if I'm doing my five, right? Sure. And that is feedback. And that is paint me a picture that I could not paint myself, mm -hmm. which is about my defects. Right. Because I am, like everybody else, somewhat blind to some of them, right? Mm -hmm. Until they become apparent. Mm -hmm. So when someone first gave me that list, of my defects, first of all, I was a little angry, right. but it was mostly because I had no idea. I was ignorant of some of them that were right. detrimental to me, right? Definitely. So when that person showed me that, I was like, holy, yeah. I never would have came to that, like yeah. ever, man. My brain was working around it. Right? Yeah, right. And so I just, I'm glad that it worked for you. Oh, it thank makes you. me happy, man. That's oh, it did. For right sure. on. Yeah, and like I said, it's on my Facebook. If you scroll, my my account, every everything's public with me, yeah. so I have nothing to hide at these days. And but uh, if you if you are interested in looking at my Facebook account and scrolling way down to uh, the uh, October, maybe yeah. or December, there's my there's the defects <laughs> Dave gave me. I might ask you that. <laughs> yeah, I might have to do that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, brother. I okay, appreciate brother. it. Okay, Thank you very much. Yeah, I man. appreciate it. Me too. Thanks, dude. And that no was. Yeah, hour and eight minutes, dude. Oh, right on. Perfect. Things just work out, right? They do, man. Yeah. They always do. The right timing. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, man. Thank you. Oh, I hope it goes well. I think it's going to be help awesome. somebody. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, cool. I get, I get feedback all the time mm -hmm. about from people who, like, are just touched by it, right? Man. Like, they'll oh, good. They'll message me and oh, say, man, this guy's story or this gal's yeah. story. Or, yeah. Uh, yeah, I really appreciate it, man.